0: There are the joyful agains, our children shout on the swings, the exhausting agains of cooking and laundry, and the difficult agains of discipline. So much of what we do as mothers is on repeat. So what if we woke up with clarity, knowing which agains we were called to, and went to bed believing we are faithful in what matters most? We believe God's word is the key to untangle from the confusion and overwhelm we feel. Let's look up together to embrace a motherhood full of freedom and joy. Happy Sanctity of Life Sunday, and welcome to this very special episode of the Again Podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Hickox, and today we'll be listening in on a very important discussion between Tom Strode and Betsy Corning on the sanctity of life and the dignity of every human being. Before we begin to listen in on this truly informative dialogue, I wanna share a little bit about Mr. Strode's impressive resume. Tom Strode has worked many years in Christian journalism and public policy. He recently retired from the Baptist Press as the Washington DC bureau chief and he held that position for 32 years. He has served in Christian journalism for 40 years and was also a correspondent for the Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission or ERLC as we'll refer to it here. And though I could tell you much more about his resume, I think what others have to say about his character is even more impressive to hear. One man said it is not an overstatement to describe Tom as one of the greatest writers in the history of Baptist journalism. Former ERLC vice president called Mr. Strode one of the finest men he has ever known. His example of gracious faithfulness has influenced many Christian men and women working in D.C. He said he could always count on Tom to search out the whole truth of an issue and to report it clearly and a longtime bioethics consultant referred to Tom as the consummate professional, competent, adept, and ethical, and a giant of personal and professional integrity in every way. Our listeners know Betsy Corning as the author of Entrusted with a Child's Heart, and she has been praying for Roe v. Wade to be overturned for almost 50 years. And this past June, her prayers and the prayers of many faithful followers of Christ and pro-life advocates had their hopes realized. But we want to make it clear this isn't about debating. This is about embracing God's word and the truth it reveals and living that out, that our love of the Lord would extend outside our front door and that we would be the hands and feet of Christ to this world and that inside our homes, knowing the truth that God truly cares for every human life would energize and renew us to care for our family well and to know that God has a purpose for every human life. May you be blessed strengthened, and encouraged to wholeheartedly follow in the truths of God's Word. And may the Lord reveal to you how you can practically live that out in your home and beyond. Thanks for listening. Hello, Tom. Welcome.
1: Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Betsy. I'm so grateful for the ministry of Entrusted, and it's kind of you to enable me to be a part of this.
2: Well, in our discussion so far, it's been very interesting to see all of your insight and wisdom about what's happened over really not just your part as a reporter in the last 40 years, but just through the centuries. And we would like to update our listeners on really what's been happening in this whole issue of the sanctity of life and abortion and other related issues. Hopefully it serves to really enlighten some people that for me, I wasn't up to date on a lot of the things that I've been reading lately, and I feel that often the public links behind what's really happening behind the scenes. So hopefully this will be helpful. I know it's going to be deep, and I know it's going to be eye-opening. So we really thank everybody for listening. We do believe in the Bible and the authority of God's Word. So, Tom, let's start with talking about how the Bible addresses the issue of abortion and the sanctity of life.
1: Well, thank you, Betsy. And you're right. I mean, that is where we need to start. But the Bible's picture of life, human life, its worth, really is established quickly in the very first chapter of God's Word. In Genesis one twenty-seven describes God creating human beings and the first human being after he created other creatures. And in this case, it says that, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so we see, unlike the other creatures that are created by God, mankind, human beings, who it says he made male and female, were created in his image. And he confirms that in Genesis chapter 9, after the flood that brought judgment upon the earth, except for Noah and his family and the animals that were spared. God tells Noah there that uh, he's going to require a reckoning for the taking of a man's life. And in the reason he gives in, in verse 6 of Genesis 9 is for God made man in his own image. And so he's saying that capital punishment is a result of murder, of the taking of a human being's life. And so that provides basically the umbrella for the Bible's teaching on the dignity and sanctity of all human life. And then when you consider, as we are at this time and on this podcast, the unborn child, we see that the Bible uses, in some cases, language for the, in its original languages, uh, for the unborn child that it also uses for young infants. Um, Luke is, is maybe the best example. There's the word that's used for baby there. Brephos is how we would translate it from the Greek language to describe John the Baptist when he's still in his mother Elizabeth's womb. But then it also is used, that's in Luke chapter 1. In Luke chapter 2, that same word is used to describe the baby Jesus in the manger on two occasions. And then Luke 18, that same word is used to describe infants and babes who are brought to Jesus by their parents for him to touch them. And so there are other ways in which the Bible affirms the dignity of the unborn child as a member of the whole human family that has human dignity and sanctity, because it's made, or he or she is made in the image of God. And not
2: only made in the image of God, but Life begins. I think that's a big question that society has raised is when does life actually begin? And of course, the Bible tells us that life begins at conception. So and we can see some verses, obviously, the whole Psalm 139, which David is speaking there about how the Lord formed his fashioned his unformed substance, and, you know, all his days were known before there was even one of them. So we understand that too. And as believers, we, we embrace that understanding that life begins at conception. So um, we were discussing briefly a book that is now out of print called Third Time Around. And that book sort of talks about nothing new under the sun, right? That this is the third time around there's been this major push for abortion And can you just briefly tell us, I guess that book was written by a pastor, George Grant, and he actually lives in Franklin. Tell us a little bit about his book and why he wrote it and the history behind it.
1: Right. And that, I think, is really important for us all to consider as Christians in the 21st century, that this viewpoint of the church based on scripture and the church's ministry in the pro-life arena has been around for centuries. Um, George Grant in this book talks about the fact that infanticide and abortion have existed through the centuries, but so has the church's pro-life ministry. He cites a document known as the Didache, which is subtitled, The Teaching of the Twelve Apostles to the Nations, that came, came into existence around the turn of the very first century AD. And in it, the Didache says, there are two ways, one of life and one of death. And there is a great difference between the two ways. And later it says, you shall not murder a child by abortion nor kill a child at birth. So we're talking about early, early Mm -hmm. church history and this viewpoint that the church held that abortion was murder and infanticide is murder as well. And so he traces this history. And one of the people he focuses on in one of his chapters about the early church was Basil of Caesarea. He was the Bishop of Caesarea in the 4th century AD. And he taught and worked and led his church to oppose abortion and infanticide and to develop pro-life ministries. At this time in the Roman Empire, families could just abandon children after they were born if they decided they didn't want them the father could make a decision whether that child would continue to be a member of the family. And they had these walls in Caesarea where they would expose the children and they would die there. And, and he and others, the deacons in his church, went out one night and actually tore down the walls to demonstrate they were not going to stand for that mm. at this time. And then through the centuries, the church has continued to have this pro-life view and this view of the dignity of the unborn child and all human beings, not only in starting ministries to vulnerable people, starting hospitals, but continuing to support the pro-life cause for pre-born children. He talks about in this book the missionary movement of the 1800s and early 1900s when people like Amy Carmichael, William Carey, David Livingston, and others opposed abortion and infanticide and ministered to those women in need as part of their gospel ministry. And so what we do now as the church is just building on the heritage we have, which is based on, obviously, the Word of God. And I thought your point about David writing in Psalm 139 is, is a good illustration of another way in which the Bible affirms the dignity and sanctity of a pre-born child. He not only talks about being formed in his mother's womb, but... Uh, Others write similar things as well in the Bible. Jeremiah, Isaiah, and the Apostle Paul all talked about God's claim on their lives when they were still in the womb. And so we really have a a wonderful heritage. It's a heritage that Mm. goes against the culture that we live in now and that Christians have lived in in the past.
2: And what a wonderful thing to think about our heritage, that the Lord has created each of us in His image for His purposes, and He knows that purpose. I think that ought to really encourage every one of us, that God has a purpose for our lives. And I hope that our children grow up knowing that and knowing that they're, they're actually very special and beloved by God. In fact, it says in Ezekiel, all souls belong to God. And I really love that verse Mm -hmm. also. You mentioned here that the father could dispose of his child, sell the child into slavery. It was my understanding from some recent research that this was a lifelong thing. And I was really taken by that. The Bible is so contrary to life being cheap or insignificant or not meaningful. It it definitely has purpose. And that's a part of the sanctity of life also. You mentioned some of these people that didn't just work for abortion, but they also worked for treating people in hospitals. Give us an example of how the sanctity of life really spreads into other areas of life. It's really not just about the abortion issue, but it's about the dignity of life in several different arenas.
1: No, you're exactly right, Betsy. And I think that is really important. A lot of the focus for me early when my pro-life convictions and efforts was just focused on the unborn and, and have to realize based on Genesis 1, if nothing else, that that statement that every human being is made in the image of God, that the very first person was made in the image of God. It covers everything, everyone. And it's not governed by the health of a person, the age of a person, the condition of a person, uh, the skin color or ethnicity of a person, the gender of a person even. Uh, It's all encompassing. And so when we think of uh, other Ministries are other people in different situations other than the preborn, whether they're people who have Down syndrome or other conditions, whether there are people who are poor, whether they're terminally ill, whether they're elderly, whether they have Alzheimer's and dementia and trafficking victims, refugees, immigrants, everyone is made in the image of God. And we, in relating to everyone, even our opponents on this issue and other issues, we need to remember that person is made in the image of God and is deserving of protection in life, but also respect as an image bearer.
2: Yes, I agree. And I think we're gonna come back to some of those issues to some degree. But let's go back to where we are right now in this country because it's it's a big some big changes are going on. And of course when that happens, then we're going to have some big challenges. So as far as Roe v Wade goes, I mean I would like our listeners to really understand how did this third time around, happen and when did it kind of start? It sort of formulated earlier than the seventies when the Roe v. Wade decision was made. But can you give us some background on that and and who were Roe and who were Wade and how did this all come to be?
1: Okay, sure. You know, abortion was not outlawed by the states at the beginning of the American Republic, but in eighteen in the eighteen twenties the first state actually enacted a ban on abortion. And after the Civil War, a kind of a coalition, even if they weren't working together so much, of churches, denominations, doctors, and even the early women's rights advocates were working to protect human life. Some of the, we some women who are considered early feminists, like Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Stady Canton were pro-life. They weren't working to give women the right to abortion. They saw those children, unborn children, as deserving of protection. And so by the 1880s, all states in America at that time uh, had some form of abortion ban. Now, they may have differed different from state to state, but largely abortion was banned in the 1880s in the states. Well, you jump forward about 80 years and things began to change in the 1960s. Some states legalized abortion. Most notably New York. New York state did not have a, a residency requirement. So women would travel from other states to where their, where abortion was illegal where they live to New York to have an abortion. And in fact, in the 1972, the year before abortion was legalized in this country, more than 100,000 women traveled just to New York City oh to have abortions. And then everything changed dramatically on January 22, 1973. That was the date of the Roe v. Wade decision. In that decision, the Supreme Court justices voted 7-2 to to strike down all state bans on abortion. So what they did was wipe out every state restriction on abortion. They decided that the reasoning was that there was a right to privacy in the Constitution, and that right to privacy protected a woman's right to choose to have an abortion. On the same day, there was a companion decision, also approved by 7 to two, known as Doe V. Bolton. And in that decision, the court legalized abortion for women after the viability of the child for health reasons. And those health reasons, they said, included, physical, emotional, psychological, familial, and the woman's age, anything that was relevant to her well-being. So what that ended up happening was that made abortion just an expansive right, what I think was rightfully called abortion on demand. and And so for the next almost 50 years, it's estimated that 63 million, unborn children were aborted legally in this country and obviously there's opposition to that out of that the pro-life movement was already there but it really began to develop after the Roe decision and a year later the first march for life was held it's been held every year since then in washington dc and was again Yesterday in Washington, Mm D.C., tens of thousands of people gathered together to march for the sanctity of human life.
2: So who was Roe specifically? Who was that woman?
1: Well, those who were trying to overturn Texas's abortion law, at least, and as it turned out, they accomplished overturning all state bans, were looking for a woman to provide the test case. And so Jane Rowe, as she was known in the case, was actually Norma McCorvey. This became known later. She was a woman who was interested in having an abortion, agreed to be a part of the test case. And and so Wade was, Henry Wade, who was the district attorney for the Dallas County. And so they challenged the Abortion rights lawyers challenged the Texas law on behalf of Jane Roe, and, and it went all the way to the Supreme Court. The court obviously agreed with them, maybe beyond their wildest dreams, I don't <laughs> know, in what they actually ruled. And it received criticism even from liberal lawyers after that. There were some lawyers legal scholars like Lawrence Tribe of uh, Harvard Law School, like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was a women's rights lawyer at that time. But then she became Supreme Court Justice in the 1990s. And they were critical, not of the ultimate decision. They agreed with uh, abortion rights, but they were critical of the court's reasoning in coming to the conclusion they did. In fact, Ruth Bader Ginsburg said it was sweeping and it was really doctor-centered rather than woman-centered.
2: Very interesting. Well, we understand that not everybody is going to think of human life the same that we do. We understand that we're presenting here the Christian worldview, that we believe that God created each individual in his image and and has worth placed on their lives, and so we protect that life. But we understand that there are people that don't believe that, and because they don't believe that, that has implications for life also. One of the things that I've learned recently, which was so interesting, was that if you don't believe that human life was created by God or in his image, then your explanation for the purpose of life or the beginning of life changes dramatically. And if we all evolved, and if we all evolved from the same matter or material, as animals or any other living organism, well, then we have something in common with them and we are no better than them. So that is the new thing that is out now that I've heard is being called a speciesist or speciesism. A speciesist is somebody who believes that human life is superior to the life of any other life, even the life of animals. Well, PETA, which is the acronym for the people's ethical treatment of animals, defines speciesism as the human held belief that all other animal species are inferior. thinks thinking involves considering animals who have their own desires, needs, and complex life as means to a human end. And so It was coined in 1970 by Richard Ryder in a privately published pamphlet, and then that idea was carried on from Peter Singer and popularized in Animal Liberation. So the main idea there is because we've all evolved and we're really all the same matter, we shouldn't think of ourselves, people, as more highly evolved or more special than animals or other living organisms. So when you think about that, you see the implication of that kind of thinking that a baby isn't really how we regard a baby, a preborn baby or a person that's infirmed. What happens is we start thinking of how we can constantly invoke ourselves into the evolutionary process that they believe is taking place and constantly improving it. And so we get this whole new arena or area of bioethics and biogenetics. But before we get back to that, once I was looking up the the leading cause of death in babies and they don't even mention abortion because it's so vastly higher number than any other cause of death in an infant that they they just don't even include it so that being interesting somebody actually did make an attempt to do some research and include that and was obviously completely uh prevented from getting that information out but we should say along those lines that abortion is really underrecorded and i think that the numbers are much higher than the numbers that we have. I've heard higher numbers. I'm sure that, that you have too, but along that lines, it's become pandemic. It's circulating around the world. And as we know, the one child policy that was took place for about 25 years in China, China boasts having aborted close to 400 million children, babies. So we see this not just as an issue in the United States, but a global issue of how people view human life. And we have the understanding that they're not necessarily going to agree with us because they're coming from a completely different worldview. So we just want to make sure that people understand that.
1: I'd be glad to comment on what you were saying there, especially at the start. Yeah, There are obviously people that disagree with us, and, and we as Christians are going to come from the perspective of what does God's word say. Yes. But, you know, some people try to just say we're trying to impose our religion on other people. And, and make religion an opponent of science. And they say, well, we believe in science. But the science really confirms what the Bible has taught. A child at the moment of conception has his or her whole genetic code. That's not going to change. Scott Klusendorf, who's the head of the Life Training Institute, has a, an acronym known as SLED that he uses to describe the difference the, the fact that really there's no difference between an unborn child and a born child based on whether they have a worthy life. And SLED is size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency. And he says, you know, your size didn't matter. Yes, an unborn child is smaller than a born child or a child who's older or a human being. But that doesn't make that person, the size of a person doesn't determine whether he or she is worthy of protection. And the level of development, yes, but a five-year-old isn't as developed as a 25-year-old. So we're not going to say, well, the five-year-old's life is not worth as much as a Mm 25-year-old's environment. Does it make a difference? If a child is in the environment of his mother's womb as op- opposed to maybe several minutes later being outside his mother's womb does that mean that he or she is unworthy of life and protection and degree of dependency I can see in the future I am going to be re- could be really dependent <laughs> on other people to continue in my life a newborn child for months is in with years really is so yes. dependent on his or her mother and father and to for almost everything and people with dementia people with debilitating diseases any of us can be dependent does that mean now we're not worthy Well, it's not a matter of our quality of life. It's the fact that we have dignity in our life.
0: That's part one of this very stimulating conversation. And part two will be coming shortly. In case this episode has brought about feelings of regret or remorse for any acts in your past, I just want to remind you what God's Word says. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's found in 1 John 1 9. As Betsy says in Entrusted, why carry something around with you every day that Jesus has died to forgive? Is his sacrifice or forgiveness too small for your sin? It is not. Betsy will touch on this in part two a little bit more. Whatever our regrets are in life, the Lord is bigger than it all, and his forgiveness extends to our deepest sins. Thank you for listening, and keep caring for those image bearers in your home. We know how hard you work, and the Lord certainly does too. We know you're busy, Mama, so we are truly grateful you joined us for this episode of Again. If you're looking for more information about building your home on the foundation of Jesus Christ, head to www.entrustedministries.com to learn more about our study for moms, Entrusted with a Child's Heart. This scripture-saturated study has blessed families around the world, and we want it for you too. Before you go, I want to pray this benediction over you from 2 Thessalonians one through 11-12. We're rooting for you. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Until we meet again.